0: hey
1: everybody and welcome back to from the front row this is lauren and i'm super excited to be sharing an episode well an interview that i did with carla Britton back oh it was maybe september so anyways we've waited a while to release this episode but i absolutely love talking with carla she is a phd epidemiology graduate from the university of iowa and she now serves as the lead epidemiologist at the alaska native tribal health consortium It was awesome to talk to her. She has a lot of really great practical advice for students, whether you're an undergrad, master's, or graduate student, and for individuals looking to work with native populations or maybe populations farther away from our home state of Iowa. If it's your first time with us, welcome. We're so happy to have you listening. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone both in and outside of the field of public health. Okay, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Carla. I'm happy to have you here. To start off, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, why you're here,
0: all of that. So my name is Carla Britton. Um, I am here as the Career Alumni Award recipient, which is quite an honor. I am the lead epidemiologist at the Alaska Native Epidemiology Center located in Anchorage, Alaska, which yeah. is not in Iowa. It's actually nowhere near Iowa. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> true. Your, your geography's great. <laughs> well, I've got that going
1: for me at least. So if that's correct, you live in Anchorage, Alaska. I do. Okay. Tell us a little bit about that because I feel like everyone's going to be like,
0: wait, What? <laughs> So, Anchorage is Alaska's urban center. Uh, There's almost 400,000 people that live in the urban area. Holy cow,
1: 400,000? Just about
0: half the population, a little actually over half the population of the state of Alaska. Whoa. In two parts of it, Anchorage proper, and then a couple suburbs that are relatively nearby. Okay. Um,
1: So, when I think of urban, like, I'm thinking big city, but also when I think of Alaska, I'm thinking, like, iceberg.
0: So, we're what is it uh it's kind of both okay so anchorage itself feels a little bit like a small city but a complete city uh you know with all the things you would expect in cities including you know costco i was just gonna i was literally gonna ask do you guys have costco two two okay
1: are you a costco shopper of course i am too
0: Um, Yeah, so it does have that kind of urban feel. And by the way, Alaskans are big Costco shoppers. We should get extra credit points for that. Um, But within a really short space, really at the edge of town, is a very, very large state park and national forest. So we back basically onto this huge wilderness area. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, outside of the sort of main metropolitan areas in Alaska, and a couple of them aren't really all that big, um, we have a lot of really remote country that is accessible only by plane or boat. Wow.
1: And who lives out in that? Does anyone live out in the remote country? And if so, who? Well, they
0: do, actually. Uh, There are a lot of villages that are primarily Alaska Native that are located in remote rural Alaska, um, and those villages range in size from anywhere from about 30 people to about a thousand. Um, wow. They're accessible predominantly by plane or boat, and in the winter sometimes by snow machine. Oh my gosh. On like frozen rivers.
1: So do they live in traditional housing or?
0: Nope. They live in houses that are, uh, just like houses that you and I would live in, like anybody basically. But, uh.
1: In some cases,
0: some of the communities still don't have running water. Wow. Um, And so a a big uh, sort of um, initiative within the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium, which is where I work, is to bring running water to some of the last communities within Alaska.
1: Wow, and how many are left? It's about
0: 3,000 people that are left.
1: Okay, and how do they get their water currently?
0: Um, in, in a number a of different, different places, ways, uh, they sometimes get it directly from like, a river. Sometimes they'll get it from rainwater. Most of the communities do have kind of a central water point where there's water and maybe a like laundromat um, mm. kind of facility or a, a place for sort of steam baths. Um, it's a little bit varied, but but it is in a variety of different ways, just depending on where you are and com- how close you are to other water sources.
1: Do these communities want running water in all of their houses or are they resist not resistant? I don't know. So
0: one of our communities just the second half of it just literally in the last week got running water and everybody was very excited. Oh. Um in part because um probably the biggest change is moving from essentially a honey bucket to a running water bathroom. Yeah, so that's a big, a big, a big switch. People are pretty excited
1: about. I guess I didn't even think do. about the bathroom part of that. That's an important part of running water. It's a really you don't really
0: think about it if you don't have you know if you have running water. But it, yes, it's a very big part of running water. Uh, the other big part of it is having running water to do dishes and wash right. hands. Um, and there's some pretty good evidence that suggests that access to running water affects your ability to sort of reduce disease rates. So if you have running water, then respiratory infections and other infections are less. So it's a big public health initiative.
1: Wow. And you're working on that. Is that part of your current role?
0: I actually don't spend a lot of time working directly on that. Um, We have a division of engineering and I guess it's environmental health and engineering that is primarily, it's basically a part of it is a really big construction operation. A, right, and engineering operations. Yeah, so it's a lot of infrastructure. Yep, big okay, infrastructure.
1: Okay, um, last question about Alaska-related, or at least for now. So, what does the Alaskan Native population like look like? Can you describe them for our audience?
0: Not like physically look, but like what's, what are they about? So, within Alaska, uh, the Alaska Native population is about twenty percent of the overall population in the state, which makes it the highest proportion of Alaska Native or American Indian people within the states. Um, There are about 150,000 Alaska Native people. The population sort of demographics are predominantly younger than the non-Native population in Alaska. Um, And although a lot of Alaska Native people, of course, do live in the urban areas, the, the remote population is predominantly Alaska Native. So, you know, the villages might have about 90% or so who are Alaska Native or American Indian. Wow. Okay. So, so it's a large population? Mm-hmm. About 150,000, yeah. yeah. yep. And the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium, for whom I work, actually has, among other things, a hospital and provides sort of tertiary care as well as specialty medical care um, to the Alaska Native people within and American Indian people within Alaska.
1: Wow. This is like the perfect segue into what do you do now? Explain your role now and like what that entails. So
0: I am uh, technically the lead epidemiologist slash deputy director of the Alaska Native Epidemiology Center, which is one of 12 what we call epicenters in the United States. There's one for each of the Indian Health Service areas and one that serves the urban Indian programs. That, and that one's based in Seattle. Uh, So we support our sort of tribal health organizations and tribal constituents through a lot of public health programs that are mainly centered around data, data dissemination, surveillance, and training. Um, So it's not – we do do some health promotion, but ANTHC is a really big organization, and some of the other uh, public health services that might sit Within epicenters, in other areas, it's outside and is in its own division. So we focus a lot on data and data dissemination.
1: So do you have a lot of contact with Alaskan Native people, or are you working more with in your team at
0: the center? At we have center? a lot of tribal health partners. So, for example, last week, was it just last week? I was... Um, in Kotzebue, Alaska, which is the home of the Menelik Association, which is one of our regional tribal health organizations, to work with them on a couple projects. So we do have a fair, I mean, we have, we do a lot of technical assistance directly for the tribal health organizations.
1: And that's what the data dissemination looks like?
0: Some of it is data dissemination. Some of it is epi studies. Some of it is, you know, special demography requests. Some of it is training. Um, we do a little bit of all of these things at any given moment.
1: Yep, that's, I feel like most
0: jobs, you know,
1: especially when you get up to the level that you're at, require a lot of different hats. So then how did you get to where you're at? Can you speak to your educational path? So
0: I have a little bit of a non-traditional <laughs> pathway to getting here. Uh, I sort of found out about public health. I think I probably already always knew about it. But when I was you know, an undergraduate, I took a, a class in... Variously titled introduction to community health or introduction to environmental health, depending on which pathway you took. Same class, uh, and then ended up working for the National Park Service through an internship. So remember, get it, take an internship. Yeah. Uh, for almost 18 years. Wow. In a, in a variety of different positions, but the last few years predominantly in law enforcement. Okay, explain what that is. It's like being, you know. A wildlife pop. Okay, so did except you just, the wildlife, wildlife all has two legs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's probably really accurate. So where did you work doing that stuff?
0: Uh, I started in Yosemite National Park as uh, you know, like maybe a sophomore in college, and then uh, when I finished up that part of my career, I was in a park in northern Wisconsin, uh, and then I segued actually directly from there into uh, a public health job or public health internship, actually. I was, um, by that time, also a grad student at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, where I was commuting back and forth, um, oh, dang! but it actually worked out really well. I worked like four 10-hour ten, four ten days and had three days off, and they were split, and so I could make it actually work pretty efficiently. Um, so then I ended up working, uh, doing a junior co-step internship with the Indian Health Service, at a local tribal health clinic, which was very conveniently located to my house.
1: Well, sometimes that's, it's the little things, right?
0: Although I will say that um, if you don't have as many dependents in terms of houses and pets, that it might be more exciting to do something that's not right at home and experience some a little broader, more excitement. There were some folks in Alaska that basically told me that my strategy should be just to quit grad school and come work for them. I'm like, yeah, I don't think so, but nice try. <laughs> they gave it a shot. Good shot. They gave it their best shot. So, um
1: so from that point, then I
0: kind of had to make a decision about whether I was going to look for a job or kind of what the next step was going to be. I ended up actually applying for a job which i was offered and then subsequently decided to go back to grad school and get a phd because then you can be a cdc epidemic intelligence service officer which is the second coolest job on the planet after being a park ranger and i ended up uh, at the state of idaho Um, and there there, you know there were some pathways in between i worked for ui sports medicine for several years and while getting my degree here which was also super fun. Yes. Uh, and then and then finally uh finished up in Idaho and made my way to Alaska which was not a shocker is I've kind of known i known about the tribal epicenters for a really long time and kind of expected that I would at some point in time work in Alaska.
1: So how long have you been in Alaska? I have been in Alaska 10 years. Okay, so yeah, you are well acquainted. Mm-hmm. So, looking back on your path, what part of your schooling do you think was most uh, formative
0: in what you're doing now? You know, all of the public, all of the public health pieces, and actually quite a lot of the pieces even before, have been really useful. Um, I was a wildlife biology major as an undergrad, but I also spent my summers interning with the National Park and. So there's this really big communications piece, and I think we discount in public health how important communications is, especially.
1: especially I, I think we, we
0: all learned that during COVID. Right <laughs> now we might know
1: it, but before that might have been a so, lesser-known fact. It's
0: a little—it's a little clearer uh, and a little sharper focused now than it was how important communications is and being strategic. Uh, and so I think we we learned that. I brought that piece. You know from the park the service, service with me since a big part of what you do in the park service is really public communications right uh and then and they got really, really good grounding here in and just for public health principles, principles here and you know and epi of course is sort of your first love because why would you not want to use it as the puzzle solving skill that it is right it's really about puzzle solving um i also really like the science of ecology and to, to be, be honest epi is just the ecology of disease so it right was, it was an excellent, excellent transition, transition for me. me um and i so i use a lot of it uh, really on a day-to-day basis
1: what made you decide that you wanted to get your phd and then what
0: or why in epi specifically So uh, the PhD was in part driven by the whole EIS focus because you actually can't be an EIS officer unless you have some sort of terminal degree. Can you explain what that is? So that's the Epidemic Intelligence Service. It's a CDC two-year fellowship. Um, Only one of many CDC fellowships. I'm going to put a little plug in here for public health fellowships that you might consider uh, as you move toward graduation from either your undergraduate program or your MPH mm-hmm. or your MS or anything else that you have. Um, and it's it's intended to be a really applied fellowship. Uh, you, m- about 70 percent of the class will end up at the CDC in Atlanta and, or at other CDC programs and then about 30 percent will end up at states or tribes or other affiliated programs. Uh, I chose to go to a state. I wanted to see how local public health worked, um, which was very informative. Of course, the one really important thing is if you know about one state, you know about one state yep. and nothing more. <laughs> we say that all the time, especially about, like, Medicaid. <laughs> it's about Medicaid. Any, It's really every state program runs exactly the way it does in that state Yep. and in, like, no other state. So it was a really good entree into kind of seeing how one state Thinks about and does public health. Um, I chose Epi in part just because I love puzzles and Epi is really the puzzle solving piece of public health. Yeah. Um, And it's got some great skills, you know, lots of data skills and all those things that because mostly I manage people, I've completely forgotten. But but you had them to start. And I had people, I have people to do those. Yeah, exactly. So do you think that your time as a,
1: well, with the National Park Service, impacted or I mean impacts what you do now?
0: Sure I mean uh, those communication pieces of it are a big piece of what I do now.
1: Yeah I think that's that's, like the beautiful thing about public health is that there's like so many intersections with other disciplines and I think the broad variety that people bring to it is kind of what makes it such a unique field.
0: And I do do think it's it's also one of the reasons that people are attracted to it is that there is this really broad spectrum of interests and this really broad spectrum of skills, the sort of skill set that people use. Um, if you work in really, especially if you work in like local public health, I, I would say it's less true if you work on sort of the national level than it is really if you work in local public health where, you know, you're kind of dependent on using all your skills to get your job done.
1: Yeah. Yeah. think that's a really good point. So what research are you involved in right now?
0: So we do um, a lot of non-research public health surveillance and data dissemination kind of projects. And then we do some quality improvement projects, one of which is a that I'm working on right now, we're just kind of getting off the ground, is around hepatitis C screening um, within the tribal health system. And then um, I also have work with someone who's doing a project around sort of clinical decision-making in medevacs, because we do a lot of rural medevacs in Alaska more than anywhere else. What is
1: a medivacs? Um So those are
0: medical flights for um, to sort of higher-level facilities. Okay. And so we do a lot of that uh, in Alaska, obviously, since a lot of our villages in particular are accessible by air only. And so... Uh, One of the projects has to do with some of the decision-making around how we decide how a patient is going to get from a village to higher medical care, whether they uh, are metaflighted out of there or whether they are going to go on the next commercial flight or whether they're going to stay in the village.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. So That's a pretty exciting project. when you say public health surveillance, what type of things are you looking at?
0: So we do a lot of work um, with some of the national data sets that are collected. So obviously, Burfus. Um We have a huge partnership with the state of Alaska around BRFSS. In fact, we've done, um, a, with a state partnership, a really nice data sharing app. Um, which, really? You know, if you show up tomorrow, you can have a look at um, yeah, yeah, and that was really important because of a, a cyber attack that the state experienced and we kind of lost our, the ability to do that. But this provides more accessible data to the state partners in a way that reduces burden in terms of special data requests and everything else. Um, we also do a lot with uh, really basically any public data set or and or data set that we can acquire from the state that we share. Specifically with an Alaska Native focus. Um, we're a big partners also in the state's state health improvement plan, which is Healthy Alaskans 2030. Mm-hmm. And the epicenter provides data support to the Healthy Alaskans program. And that, again, is a really big state of Alaska, Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium partnership where both organizations provide some resources uh, to the partnership. Um, so that's been, and it's multi-year partnership it's been really exciting
1: wow okay can you explain some of the challenges and triumphs you have seen while working in the area of alaska native
0: native health um obviously our i mean from a data standpoint our challenges are always small numbers um from uh improving public health you know, there's obviously you know, a couple big pieces one of them is that when you have these really remote and rural populations, um, they're at just a general disadvantage in terms of both economic resources but also just healthcare access. So um there are lots of initiatives to kind of address some of those things and sort of on the A and THC level we have a dental health aid therapist program which is intended to basically improve access to oral health care, which is really exciting because that's a huge, big burden um, and certainly impacts people's health across their lifetime. Absolutely. Uh, we that's also have a community health aid program and the community health aids in our smaller villages provide almost all emergency and preventive health care. Wow. Uh, so that's um, a really big program. and well, We have a similar program for behavioral health aids, which is intended to focus on sort of behavioral health challenges um, at the epicenter we um, our big uh, focus in the last couple of years well last year or so really has been around data access and data sharing and working with uh, state and federal agencies to improve tribal and tribal organization access to surveillance data so that's been a big initiative
1: do tribal organizations want access to this data for their own use um,
0: the epicenters do, okay, uh, and we're, we're sort of a central point for uh, data sharing, and we'll provide a lot of technical assistance around data for the tribal health organizations. So for us, it's not as much specifically tribal access as it is access for the epicenter. Uh, for some of our other epicenter partners, it, the data access is even really more local, and there's a lot of in, some more interest in tribal access.
1: So many of many people have praised you for your incredible mentorship. What advice do you have for students looking for a mentor? And if there are people listening
0: who are looking to mentor others, do you have any advice for that? Um for looking for a mentor, I think a lot of it is, you know, finding somebody who's that you first admire and to our has interests that are aligned with the things that you think you might be interested in doing. Um, and then Um, sort of developing those relationships. And then from the standpoint of being a mentor, I think it's being there to be a a sounding board and both to provide, I mean, I've always just thought of it as a way of bouncing ideas back and forth and providing insight into whether it's possible or, or just even providing advice on where you could or could not go. Um, yeah, there's a practicality to it. There's a practicality, yeah. right? It's like, like okay, it's students a don't great get great idea, but um, <laughs> it just might not be your best idea. Um, you <laughs> don't want to squash anybody's ideas, but um, but but I think it's just a lot of it is just being a sounding board. Um, you know, people have amazing ideas, and to some degree, being a mentor is helping people. Um, get those ideas out in the world and moving them to kind of fruition. Yeah, facilitation. So, exactly, facilitation.
1: So what suggestions do you have for students who are looking to have a job kind of like yours? So like a little bit more specifically to work with maybe Native populations or to work in the type of um, federal, I don't know, what would you call it? Federal... I don't know research group essentially or consortium. Or,
0: or, yeah, I mean, if you're interested, I mean, I think this is probably true of of working in any population that experiences sort of health disparities. If you're not, if you're not of that community, then uh, you need to be humble. Um, it's not about you. Right. Um, and I think, I think you it's. Really helpful to be sort of open and honest about that. I mean, I've never been less than honest about the fact that it's clear that I am not Alaska Native or American <laughs> Indian, um, and that there are certain things I absolutely have no experience with and cannot understand. And I can I can hear and I can listen, but I cannot. I don't have that experience. Um, and I think too that just in general, being sort of innovative and flexible and open and inviting and, and realizing too that it's really about the communities and that there's no top-down solution that has ever worked at any time. <laughs> um, I think that's a really good point. And so it's, it's like, how do you engage communities um, to have, in some cases, probably really hard discussions? Right. So have you ever had a hard time
1: or have you thought that it's been harder since you aren't one of their population, or do you think it kind of gives you like an outside in? Um
0: I think it certainly, certainly a is a different perspective. perspective. I mean, you bring to whatever job you're doing the perspective from where you came from and who you are. I mean I can't change that at all. And and I did not grow up in Alaska and you know I grew up in California and so what I experience and the perspective I bring is maybe helpful but is certainly just one perspective and when I talk to friends and we talk about you know some of the experiences that they had I mean they're just extremely different and so I mean I'm more interested particularly in this environment and nurturing community members because again it's not going to come I mean no change is going to come from outside so nurturing community members to and to engage in public health and just encouraging an interest in public health right and the fact that it's this incredibly broad thing I mean I do think that one thing you know there's a lot of discussion right now about the social determinants of health yes and I think as public health practitioners one thing we do need to recognize is that there are a lot of social determinants of health over which public health has no influence. So I think that this is an opportunity for public health to sort of maybe step outside the box and think about where partners might come from and what those partnerships might look like.
1: Explain that further, so which social determinants of health do you think that applies to
0: so i think if you really think about things like education and poverty and economic opportunities those are areas in particular that public health does not have any direct influence over but they're big determinants of health absolutely both the community and sort of individual health
1: so i think those in
0: particular are going to require some unique thinking um, and some unique partnerships. Yeah, collaboration with those
1: organizations as well. That's that's some good food for thought for students listening to this. Okay, two last questions. So going a little bit more broadly, what suggestions do you have for future public health students in general, undergrad, grad, just in general going forward?
0: Um, I think that from the standpoint of you know, as you move forward into your new – career you know think a little bit about you know what is it that you're interested in where do you want to live (laughs) Um, because if you if there are places that you specifically want to live in places you specifically don't then just don't look in the areas that you're not interested in but also realize that no matter what it is that you do i can guarantee that there'll be something you can learn from it and so be flexible and don't you know, try not to be completely focused on just one goal. Realize that there could be some pathways that maybe don't look like the most obvious pathway to where you're headed, but that you can gain some valuable mileage on. Absolutely.
1: I think that's great advice. Okay. Last question. What was one thing that you thought you knew, but you were later wrong about?
0: You know, like every day, (laughs) things that I thought I knew. In my my head, some of these things have like really simple solutions. I was thinking about, uh, I was talking to somebody the other day about uh, some data access uh, to like our EHR data and some linkages. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, this really shouldn't be a big deal. It should be just an easy thing to do. And the reality of it is there's probably all sorts of barriers that I just haven't seen yet. But um, but in my head, it's really easy. Yeah. <laughs> like, this really shouldn't be a problem. So, so it's, an, it's an everyday occurrence. Everyday occurrence. Every day, you know, there's something that I thought I think should be really easy that isn't as easy as I perceive it. I always like, like to see, see these really simple paths to where we're going, and, you know, the path is rarely as straightforward as I think.
1: Yeah, I think we can all relate to that a little bit. Well, thank you so much, Carla. We were honored to have you on the podcast, and... Congratulations on your distinguished alumni award. And well, yeah, just thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks, thanks for having you. me, it's, it's been a pleasure. That's all for our episode this week. Big thank you to Carla for joining us today. This episode was hosted and written by Lauren Lavin and edited and produced by Lauren Lavin. You can learn more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with your colleagues, friends, or anyone interested in public health. Have a suggestion for our team? You can reach us at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Until next week, stay healthy, stay curious, and take care.